Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark, the 10th chapter. We'll pick up the reading in verse 17 and continue to verse 31. This is God's Word. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, uh, do not steal, or excuse me, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus uh, said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would ask you now as we consider this your word, having spoken to us now from it, with your spirit present, that you would take this word and that you would wield it as a mighty sword, that it would cut through bone and into marrow, that it would, with the surgeon's precision, both wound in order to heal that you would teach to us all that you would have us know, and that with your grace and your love you might overwhelm us, and with the call of discipleship you might challenge us. But to that which you call us, would you please give to us, and would you grant us the grace to answer your call. Meet us here in this word, we pray it, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what an opportunity this is for Jesus and his disciples. Finally, one 
of the upwardly mobile has entered the ranks of the crowd. This is what they have needed, a break like this from the very beginning. Someone to take the movement of Christ and the gospel to another level. It's clear that the disciples, as we've seen from the last several passages, are tired of messing around with all of these people who have so many needs. Uh, the, the lowest rungs of society, they're wearing them out, and can you really blame them? For far too long, they've been giving their attention to the sick, uh, to the needy, to the uh, demon-possessed, to the lame, and to the poor. Not to be disrespectful to those categories of people, but you can't build a kingdom with the likes of the lowest rung of society. They have nothing to give. It's a dead-end street. But this man, well, he's the cream of the crop. He's called here the rich young man in Mark chapter 10, but we learn in Matthew 18 and in Luke 18, which are the parallel passages to this one, that he's also a ruler. He is a rich, he is a young, he is a ruler. This man has it all going for him. Uh, resources, energy, position, connections. This is just the kind of caliber of the person the disciples have been looking for. If they could just get Jesus to quit wasting his time on these little children. You remember last week how he was wasting his time on these little children? Parents were bringing their children to him and, and the disciples were trying to shoo the children and the parents away because Jesus has got lots of important ministry things to do. And Jesus, yes, was taking them into his arms and he was uh, blessing them. This is how Jesus was conducting his ministry. But now someone of real importance has shown up, especially as Matthew indicates that these two stories are directly woven together. And it could be that there is Jesus holding that final child uh, in his hand, uh, blessing them as those parents who've been gathered around him begin to depart as he's about to take off on his journey. And the disciples have waiting in the wings now this, this, this rich young ruler, this promising one. And they're saying to him, uh, he's so eager to see you. Can you wait just a few more minutes? I, I know he sometimes gets caught up with the children. We're not totally sure why, but I promise you, he's very eager to see you. You're just the kind of person that we've been looking for. To be quite honest, you're an answer to our prayers. Uh, we've been trying to take this thing to the next level, and every time a crowd comes, he says something, and it splits the crowd, or they go away, or he spends all of his time on people that will never get us anywhere. I promise that if you stick around, Jesus has time for you, and it'll, it'll help all of us move to the next level. Well, we smiled and, of course, we chuckle a little bit at the thought that that maybe we don't actually get the disciples' internal dialogue, but we get a lot of the internal dialogue of the disciples throughout the Gospel of Mark, and this would be something consistent to what has been revealed so far in the Gospel. We chuckle and we laugh that this is the way that they thought, but how many of us think this way? How many young church plants are looking for a rich young ruler? To show up with some CEO DNA, with deep pockets and leadership potential. Uh, this is a real ringer for any church. Now, it's true that we don't have any indication here of exactly the kind of dialogue, if any, that the disciples had with this man, but we do know something about this man. 
We do know something about this man's internal dialogue. We know something about his thoughts because he gives voice to them here in the text. And if you're able to understand that these two stories, the story about the children coming to Jesus, him taking them in his arms and blessing them, saddled up right next to, juxtaposed, as Mark has done here, uh, the story of the rich young ruler, Mark is teaching us something very important about what it means to enter the kingdom of God by giving us two very different types of people. A needy, helpless, lowest rung of society children and the upwardly mobile, everything together, rich and powerful, the rich young ruler. If we look at these two stories together, could it possibly have been that the rich young ruler was actually there at the very end of the the last section in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus actually says in verse uh, 15... Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Imagine with me that the rich young ruler is actually there as Mark or as Matthew tends to indicate. And he hears Jesus say that to enter the kingdom is it, one has to be like a child. How puzzling is this? This man is a ruler after all. He knows something about kingdoms. He knows something about authority. He comes to ask Jesus after this puzzling statement What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this, my friends, is an evangelist's dream. Here is the question we all want to hear. This is low-hanging spiritual fruit. This is evangelism on a silver platter. No long relationship building, months of time looking for the gospel in a way to interject it in a conversation. No, here's someone who comes and just says... What must I do to inherit eternal life? Any modern day evangelist would have this man signing a card and baptized the same day. But not Jesus. Instead of reeling this young man in while he's got him here before him, what looks to be on a hook, Jesus slows things down and he picks apart the man's question. Consider again what the young man asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I do. What what must I do, the man says, to inherit eternal life? It's an understandable question, isn't it? It's it's the way we tend to approach life. We're we're used to doing life. We, We do school. We do work. We do relationships. We put our energy and our efforts into our hobbies. We're used to putting out effort and And gaining excellence from the work that we've done, it's understandable to bring a doing assumption into the spiritual realm. Especially a man who is rich, who's young, who's a ruler, who's accomplished, who's got everything together. What must he do to inherit eternal life? Some of us, to be quite honest, we listen to the sermon with that question in mind. What must I do? I wish he'd just tell me what to do. I'd do it. And if I do it, then everything would begin to turn out. We're waiting for the moment when I say, now, here's something that we can do from this path. Everybody gets their pens out, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, doing is important, but it's not first. It's not even foundational. But for those of you who want to know what you can do to inherit eternal life, Jesus is here fulfilling your wish. He wants you to know what it is that you can do. And very simply, he tells you, Keep the commandments. That's what you can do. You can keep the commandments if you want to inherit eternal life. 
Now, last night when we were eating at dinner, I was talking to my children, just laying some foundations for this particular passage, and I asked them about salvation, as we regularly will do, and what the gospel is, and how you come to know Christ, and these sorts of things, and and they rightfully acknowledged that by grace and through faith is how we are saved. And I said, well, there's another way. <laughs> there's another way. And they looked at me puzzling. They're like, my dad has lost his theological mind. I said, no, there's another way. And after a few moments, Paul's knock said, I guess we could be perfect. Bingo. You could, you could be perfect. You could do all the commands perfectly. That would be, as it were, another path. All you can do to inherit eternal life is to keep the commandments perfectly. Now, for some of us in this room, this is very discouraging information to learn that this is Jesus' instruction regarding inheriting eternal life, but it didn't hit the rich young ruler that way. Notice, as, as he begins to ask what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus actually goes through the commandments. In fact, what we call the second table of the law. Notice he says, do not commit adultery, uh, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Those are words that many of us in this room are familiar with. They're taken from Exodus chapter 20. He's rehearsing the Ten Commandments, but he's rehearsing the last half of them. The, the second table, those which have to do with the relationship between man and man in relationships on the earth. Hearing this, the rich young ruler does a quick flyover of his life, and yes, I'm, I'm good with that, yes, I'm, I'm good with that, and with an air of confidence, he says to Jesus, yeah, I've done all of that. I, I've kept this from my youth. Now, what this tells us is that power and riches don't buy wisdom. Power and riches don't buy wisdom. This man has all the power and authority that the earth could ever want or give to any particular individual, and yet this man can't actually see beyond the end of his nose, spiritually speaking. He doesn't have any idea who he actually is. In fact, we might say that he missed Jesus' first lesson in the text. What was Jesus' first lesson? Well, we actually see it there in verse 17. You remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus originally and approached him, the first words out of his mouth were, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, wait just a minute. Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. Now, what an initial fascinating response from Jesus. What was he what was he trying to drive at when he made that comment that no one is good but God alone? Well, I think we can be certain of this. He wasn't trying to call into question his own divinity, nor was he trying to draw into question his own goodness. We have far too many other passages in the Scriptures to assert both his deity and his absolute goodness as Savior and as Lord. But he was getting this young ruler to think about definitions of terms. To think about the words that he uses and what he means by them. I caught myself even this week in a text string with some pastor friends as we were talking about a particular candidate who might be good for a, for a particular pastorate and, and just commending certain things to, to one another. And I wrote, yes, he's a good man. 
He's a good man, speaking of uh, this particular pastor friend that I know. And of course, when, when I meant it that way, I meant that he was a man of character. I meant he was a man of integrity. I believe he was a man that was, that was willing, uh, that we could be trust willingly and easily. And often when we use that kind of language, that he's a good man, she's a good woman, we mean something like they're nice, they're, they're, they're mannerly, they kind of know how to get along socially, they're not hard to work with. They've kind of learned the game of life and they play it pretty well. He or she, well, they're good people. They come from, as it were, good stock. It seems as if, in a very real sense, the rich young ruler is using that kind of language here as he approaches Jesus. This was not a common way of greeting a rabbi or a teacher. He's adding in this adjective to describe his connection to Jesus here. And he, as an upwardly mobile rich man, uses niceties as a way to engage him. And Jesus says, what do you mean by good? No one is good but God. And Jesus here is an already pressing into this man's heart, though he doesn't see it. Man, do you think you're good? How do you understand good? What does it mean to be good? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one, the Scripture says. None is good except for God. Now Jesus has just rehearsed with the rich young ruler the law which undoubtedly and its design was intended to expose his sinfulness. The fact that he wasn't good. That's actually what we call one of the uses of the law. The law has a number of uses. One of its primary uses is to show us that we do not keep it. That's one of the primary biblical uses. If you read the law and you feel conviction, that's a good sign. That's one of the ways in which the law was actually designed. It's not the only way. There are other things the law has to do. But foundationally, that's one of the things. You shouldn't read the law and think, I have fully kept that completely. Now, what Jesus could have done in this particular passage is to have drilled into the law a little bit more. He could have said, well, when I speak of adultery, I don't just mean adultery. I mean, if you've ever looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. When I say murder, I don't simply mean murder. I mean, if you've ever been angry with your brother, then you've committed murder in your heart. But Jesus doesn't go at it that way. He doesn't go at the Sermon of the Mount way, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, where he unfolds the heart dimensions of the law. Instead, Jesus returns from the second table of the law After seeking to drive this rich young ruler to exposing of his own sinfulness, he now goes to the very first table of the law, the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. What do I mean? Well, notice what he says. So you've kept these things from your youth? Well, I'm pleased to say that you only lack one thing then. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. That's all you need to do. Now, we see that as soon as Jesus gives this instruction to the rich young ruler, this was not the instruction that he wanted to hear. He didn't come to Jesus ready to receive whatever it is that Jesus called him to, to inherit eternal life. He came to Jesus with, well, a certain measure or boundary with regards to he, that he would not cross. Certain things that he would not give up in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus here is exposing the heart of this young man. 
that this young man at the very center of his life, on the throne of his heart, has one thing. You know what it is? Riches. Wealth. Money. It's as if Jesus is saying, Oh, you've kept all of the law from the beginning? (laughs) Well, let's start with number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we don't even get past number one. It was money, it was riches that ultimately was what drove his life. It's what he lived for. We might even say it's the reason maybe that he's mannerly. That's sometimes the case, isn't it? Isn't it interesting the way the Lord has has made life in terms of its common structure and common grace? You know, if you live an, an ethically faithful life, if you work really hard at the things that you're called to, if you don't lie, if you're kind to others, if you serve others faithfully and well, you know what tends to happen in life? Just tends to generally, proverbially, you know what happens? Things go pretty well with you. Things tend to be fruitful. They tend to flourish. They, t- they tend to be prosperous. This man has, has been these things. He's been kind. He, he's been servant-minded. He's friendly. He, he shows even a sense of, of deference in, in the midst of the conversation. I, I get the sense that I've, I've met this guy. I, I, I know something of his manner and his way. He's, I, I, know, I mean, he was, he was definitely in a fraternity at the university. And, and, and he, he definitely was on the student council all the, all the way through. And he has a, a very high GPA and, and from a prestigious university. And he's had a very successful career. And he lives in a gated community. I know this guy. I've met this guy. He's a Williamson County guy. All right? This is the kind of guy that this is. He has a way, he has a manner about him. We would say of him, he's a good guy. He's a member at the local synagogue. He speaks religious ease. He understands what's required of him in social settings. He's being sure that his children are raised in a similar cultural context. So that the same benefits will be accrued to them. And he does all of these things because he loves God. No. He does all of these things because he loves himself. He loves what these keepings of the law get him. He is quote unquote doing good in order to get the goods that the earth offers. Now you could look at this passage and you could see that this man's heart is actually a heart that's very similar to many of us here in this room, and all of us to some degree struggle, don't we? Oftentimes approaching the things of life and even doing the quote-unquote good things of life in order to get the things that we're really after. The question that Jesus is actually posing before him is that is he willing to give up the things of earth in order to get the real treasure? Or has he misunderstood what real treasure is? You know, it's one thing to have treasure. It's another thing for treasure to have you. Uh, This man is in the latter category. God is not against people, by the way, having having riches. (laughs) Go ahead, wipe your brow. Because we're all rich in this room. No, No, it's not that person you're thinking of that's rich. It's you. By any standard, all of us here in this room are rich. We're rich. 
God's not against people having riches. We have multiple examples in the Scripture where God gives to people riches. And He does it as a means of blessing to them. He doesn't mean it as a curse to them. What happens, though, when God gives people riches is that sometimes those riches actually get a hold of us in a way that the giver is obscured by the gift. That the gift becomes the end-all and the be-all, and the giver is, is lost in the midst of it. Maybe in some sense, this rich young ruler has never seen that. And when Jesus tells him to give up that which is his idol, what's actually on the throne room of his heart, he can't handle it. He's a man who walks away sorrowful. Now, some of you may be asking yourself, listen, this is very unsettling. Does Jesus really mean for us to give everything away to the poor and, and follow him? Is that what he means? If that's the case, then a lot of us in this room are in trouble. Is that what Jesus, Jesus means? Well, you know, we could go to a lot of other passages in the Scripture and, and make a very strong argument that the point of this passage is not that by giving everything away, by, by doing this good work, we will in some way accrue eternal life. Jesus is not framing for us a works-oriented salvation where if you give charitably to the poor and follow Him, then those are the requirements for what it means to be truly saved. And now all of us have a collective sigh, right? Okay, good. That's not what this, this means. Don't get out from under the test, though. There's a test in this passage. What is the test? The test is this. Jesus is saying that anything that you or I treasure over him must go. Must go. Whatever it is. Whatever it is that you and I treasure over him must go, it must be cut out, must literally be removed from our lives to have share in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, as we said at the very opening of our service this morning, I will have no rivals. I will sit on the throne room of your heart. I will be the one in whom you will live for. The question that's really being asked in this text and the question that I asked my own heart was this this week. What in your life would cause you to turn away from Jesus with sadness if he asked you to give it up? That's the question of this text, isn't it? What in your life would cause you to turn away from Jesus with extreme sadness if he told you to give it up? Some of us in this room, it might be riches. But for others of us, it might be our jobs. It might be our achievements. It might be our good reputation. It might be our families. It might be the comforts. What is it for you? Well, make no mistake about it, Jesus has come to each of us today and he's giving us that test. He's saying to us, one thing I'm calling you to do today for you to inherit eternal life, and that is to give that up and follow me. Give that up and follow me. He's getting meddlesome, isn't he? He's getting into the very center functioning of what it is that we truly treasure because that's the way he spoke of it in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? In Matthew, where he said, where your treasure is, there your what? 
heart will be also. You see, he's put his finger on the heart of this man by putting his finger on the heart of treasure for this man. Now again, Jesus is not against treasure. In fact, he wants you to have treasure. But he wants your heart for heavenly treasure to be so far exceeding earthly treasure that you're willing to give up all earthly treasure if it means to gain heavenly treasure. That's really what it is. Some of you are saying, well, well, if I get to that point, if that comes my way, if, I, if I'm forced to have to follow Jesus or give up all of my goods, and at gunpoint, they're going to take my life if I don't do it, then at that point, I will follow Jesus. No, that's not really the point of this text. Uh, the point of this text is that every single day, you're making that decision in one way, shape, or form by how you spend your time, by how you spend your money, by what you occupy your energy about, your mind with, what you're focused on. You really want to know where your idols are, the things that you hold above God? What in your life causes you the deepest of frustrations? What makes your heart get a little quicker and your breath get a little more shallow? What scares you? What if I lost this thing? I would feel, I would say in my gut, I've lost my life. That's what this question is. And every day we're making value questions, aren't we? Value questions about what we're going to spend our time on and our energy and our resources. You see, salvation, Jesus is teaching us, is not merely declaring allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually shown in demonstrating allegiance to Jesus. That our life is mixed up in our words. That our actions truly demonstrate our real commitments. You've heard the phrase, talk is cheap, right? Sometimes that's the case. Maybe specifically in the Christian life when it comes to discipleship, where we say, oh yes, I'm committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, but if we were to videotape the real commitments of your life this last week and really look at them, would it show up that Jesus is the commitment of your life? That's the question of this text. Where is it that we're really committed? Do we demonstrate that we are truly those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ? I love that cameo portrait of the church that's given right at the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. Right after Peter preaches Pentecost, which we celebrated just a couple of weeks ago. And then a few days after Pentecost, we're seeing that the church is gathered together daily in each other's homes. They're attending the temple. They're breaking bread and they're listening to the apostles' teaching and the prayers. And we're told what? They held everything in common. They sold their goods and their belongings and they met the needs of those who were around them. They looked like people who put their life where their mouth was. They looked like people who had declared allegiance to Christ and then demonstrated it in a pattern that followed the kind of sacrifice that Jesus himself gave. You see, this is really the challenge of the Christian life, and, and I think why in some cases we've gotten it, well, wrong in our own day. This hit me this week, even in, in thinking about ways in which we share the gospel or talk about the gospel in our own uh, cultural moment. Much of modern evangelicalism, for instance, approaches evangelism, the sharing of, 
of the Christian faith as if it's a choice between heaven or hell. You know, you go to someone and you say, you know, if you trust in Jesus, you get heaven. If you don't, you're going to, to hell. Which one would you rather, rather have? Well, I'd, well, I'd, rather have, I'd rather have heaven. Yeah, it's a kind of a simple choice, isn't it? Um, so you might as well choose Jesus and get heaven. And, and that's often how, how simplistic and, and dumbed down the, the call of what it means to be a Christian is. But don't you see in this text that, that Jesus is not putting the, the parallel, the, the, the distinction, the choice between heaven or hell, is he? What's the, what's the choice? The choice is between heaven and earth. Between all the things that you have and him. That's a different thing. That's a really different thing. You can see that if you make the distinction between heaven and earth, and you realize that the choice is actually being pushed in that direction here with the rich young ruler, you realize he's talking about all the things that you call precious. And he's raising the question is, is he more precious to you than everything else in your life? That's the question he's asking. What is it that would cause you to turn away from Jesus sad because he had asked you to give up that treasure? That's what this text is raising. It makes sense then, doesn't it? Why the disciples would say something like, uh, so who can be saved? <laughs> I mean, like, who can be saved? Do, do you, are you hearing this? Like, not one of us gets out of this conundrum. And all of us have fallen short in this way. This, there's not two categories of people like those who've done this well and those who haven't done this, this well. None of us have done this well. <laughs> so the disciples are getting it because they go, so how, how does one actually get saved? <laughs> like, I thought we knew. I, I, thought we had, I thought we had understood this. And now we're back to 101 in Christianity. And... Who is it that can really be saved? And notice what Jesus says. It's actually impossible. Well, I was thinking that was the, the answer. That, that, that registers like that follows what you just said. That, that this is impossible with you. With you. But with God, all things are possible. That's what he's saying. With God, all things are possible. But with you, it's absolutely impossible. There's no way, there's no way you, can, you, you can do this. Your only hope is God. Your only hope is that, is that He would be one who would have mercy upon you. One who would be gracious towards you. Knowing that there is nothing that you could do to earn his favor, no life of righteousness that you could grant, no level or depth of repentance of turning from earthly riches unto heavenly treasure that would in any way grant you the standing that you need with Almighty God. Only with God is there hope. With you it is impossible. 
Do you see the rich young ruler had the assumption all wrong when he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is, oh God, what must you do if I am ever to have eternal life? Only you can help me. That's the question of the text. What must you do? It's clearly impossible with me. But with you, all things are possible. I love the way David Dixon says this, an old commentator on the scriptures, a little quote that has regularly come into my mind, came in again yesterday. He says, I have looked over the scope of revelation and I have realized my predicament. I have taken now all my good deeds and all my bad deeds. And I have cast them in a heap before the Lord. And I have fled to the Lord Jesus Christ. And only then have I found peace. Notice what he's saying there. I've taken all of my bad deeds, put them in a pile. And then I looked at my good deeds and I was like, these aren't going to help me either. Put those in the pile and I'm going to run to Jesus. You see the rich young ruler, he's done all these things from his youth. He's done all these things from his youth. He's not yet ready to put his good deeds in the pile. He's interested in what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus is saying, just sell all that you have. You wonder, don't you? Theoretically. <laughs> if, if this man had sought to do such a thing and it, it had registered with him that even when he sold his goods, he's still going to find himself coveting other people's goods at times. Which still makes him completely unacceptable in the sight of God. If it then he might have found out. That whether he has a lot or he has none, the question is not merely the things. The question is, does he have a heart that's devoted to the living God? Has he embraced Christ savingly? That's the question of this text. Now, Jesus says, listen, I promise you, if you give up things, and all of us give up things if we're being faithful in the Christian life, sacrifice is part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? Take up the cross daily and follow me, he says. He says, but I promise you, if you what you give up in this life, you'll get back in this life a hundredfold and in the life to come. Blessings will come from you, come towards you. And, and those of you in here who have known that kind of sacrifice, isn't that true? If you've had to give up family, you found them in the body of Christ. If you've had to give up riches, you found that the wealth of others is actually yours. You've had to give up comforts and you realize that, that the Lord has given you a peace that surpasses all comprehension, that none of the comforts of this life could actually give to you. Oh, the people this weekend who are going to be thinking they're at peace while having panic attacks on the beach trying to relax because they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a peace that surpasses any kind of earthly realm or structure. When we begin to realize that that's really the focus, that Jesus is that peace, we begin to see that all of the things that which we gave up aren't even worth comparing to all the things we got when we got Christ. You see, C.S. Lewis said it best when he said, He who has Christ in the whole world has no more than he who just has Christ. Now, only a heart of faith can truly understand that. 
He who has Christ in the whole world has no more than he who just has Christ. For to have Christ is to have all. And Peter says, I'm listening. <laughs> I, I'm listening. I hear you. I hear you, Jesus. Jesus, did you know we left everything for you? Peter's listening. It's wonderful, isn't it? Peter, we're all just Peters, right? We're going, oh, so you're saying that if I give this up, I'm actually going to get it later. And so it's actually a good investment that I might actually get the thing I'm really after if I go ahead and give it up now. And he's going to do in the calculus, you know, in his head of like how he can like work the system in order to really get what he wants on the back end if he sacrifices a little now. And Jesus is like, yes, Peter, I noticed that you gave up everything. No, that's not Jesus' heart, is it? No, Jesus, in compassion to Peter, recognizes that, yes, you did give up everything. And yes, Peter, you're actually going to give up a whole lot more before we're done. And yes, I'm going to give it all back to you and more. It's not even worthy to be compared your sacrifice. But no disciple is actually a true disciple of Jesus while looking simply at the goods and the blessings and the benefits that come from Jesus rather than having Jesus Alone is the treasure. You see, sometimes being a Christian can benefit you. And especially sometimes in our, in, our, in our southern context here in this quadrant of the U.S. Now that's less so than it's maybe ever been, but it's still got pockets. And in those pockets, sometimes it can be very beneficial to drop the name Jesus. It can get you places. And maybe sometimes we've trafficked the name of Jesus in that way. And if we have, just know that we have lost our way. Uh, Jesus is not a name to get you some earthly benefit or to get you what your heart's really after. Jesus is the gift and he is the prize. And until we know that, we've not yet begun to taste the sweetness of heavenly treasure. And where can we find uh, this kind of heart? Well, only at the foot of the cross, right? It's only there at the foot of the cross that we have this kind of heart. Paul says that we can actually deliver up our bodies to be burned. We can give away all that we have, he says in 1 Corinthians 13. And if we have not love, we gain absolutely nothing. Love for Jesus is the heart that we must have. Where do we get it? Well, surprise, surprise. We get it from Jesus. Because what did he do? He sold everything he had and followed the will of his Father for your salvation. That's what he did. And he was rich. And he was eternally young. And he is the ruler of all rulers. And he has inherited for you eternal life. That's what he's done. If we know that, Jesus... And the love of that Jesus begins to take hold of our hearts. We might just go sell everything and follow him. I pray we will. Father in heaven, would you teach us this truth? Of what it is that today may be standing in the way of truly following you. And for us to see that it is so not worth it. Whatever it is. Where moth and rust are going to destroy it, 
that thieves are going to break in and steal. No matter what it is in this earth, it is passing and it is fleeting and there's no use holding on to it, especially if it's standing in the way of Jesus. Would you give us such a love and a hunger for Christ that he is truly our heavenly treasure that earthly goods would have just no hold on us whatsoever? Father, we need to hear that. The people who live where we live and have the things that we have, where we just give off of the top of what it is that we already have stocked away and stored up, Lord, teach us. Teach us to humble ourselves before you and with the joy of the early church, enter into selling our goods and belongings and meeting the needs of others. Not, Lord, begrudgingly or without cheer, but with wonder that we get a small taste of living out the life that Christ has already lived for us when we get the joy of sacrifice in order to bless others. Lord, would you let that spirit take hold of our hearts together today and would the mark of this local congregation increasingly be one that looks like that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.